Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman, and we had so much fun talking to Allison Lurs last week that we decided that we were going to return to Wizards of the Coast. And if you are not familiar with Magic the Gathering, if you missed last week's episode, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to it because you're going to get the kind of a uh, basic rundown of what the game is and a, a lot of how the story behind it gets put together. Plus, it was just a really fun and, as I, I said then, just gloriously nerdy, geeky interview. It was a joyous experience for me. Really, it was. And I think for most of our listeners. But what about this week? Who am I talking to? Uh, I'm talking to Mark Rosewater, who is the head designer for Magic the Gathering. He is the man in charge of putting together each set of cards, actually making the game a game, deciding what kind of mechanics are going to be involved in each set, in each each card that you deal out of your deck. His career is a really interesting case study, I think, in how skills you never think you will need end up being totally integral to what you do professionally. He talks about how he started off as a aspiring writer in Hollywood who uh, for a while was writing for... Roseanne, like the original Roseanne back in the day. And now he designs a card game that was invented by a math PhD and involves tons and tons of probability, which he has to take into account when he is putting together a set of cards. In the course of our conversation, we talk about the challenge of trying to do something new, given that Magic already has 20,000 cards uh, at this point. How on earth do you come up with something fresh and different when you've already done so much? I thought it was really interesting, and I hope you enjoy. What's your name, and what do you do? My name is Mark Rosewater. I'm the head designer for Magic the Gathering. And when you say designer, does that mean you are coming up with what cards do, or the drawing? What What is a designer in, the, in this context? Uh, in this context, I help make the game. I, I have a, There's a team of people that do this. I, I'm just one of many, but I'm in charge of... What is the game about? Uh, what The actual mechanics of the game. How does it work? What do the cards do? We have a lot of people working to make magic, and there's a lot of facets to magic, uh, but I'm in charge of the, the game aspect of it, the, the, especially the early part of there's a blank piece of paper. We have to come up with something. What are we going to do? How long have you been doing this job for? So Magic the Gathering came out in 1993. I started playing when it first came out. I started freelancing for the company in 1994. I started working full-time for the company in 1995, and I became head designer back in 2003. So you have been involved in designing this game in some way, shape, or form for almost its entire existence. And you've been the, the head designer for now over a decade and a half. Yes. And how many how many cards are there approximately in all of the Magic Realm? If you talk about unique individual cards, we're somewhere around 20,000 unique cards. Somewhere over 20,000. And something for, for people to realize who might not know the game Magic the Gathering, uh, it's what's called a trading card game, 
And the idea is you can pick any 60 cards you want from all the cards that exist and make a deck out of them. So you have a lot of uh, decisions as a game player to decide what you want to do. So the mm -hmm. fact that there's so many different cards means lots of people are playing Magic but playing in very different ways because what they choose to play with might be very different from what other people will play with. How many of those 20,000 cards would you say you actually know off the top of your head? Once upon a time, I knew them all, but that was many years ago when there wasn't so many. I probably know of the 20,000, uh, four to 5,000 maybe. And you were charged with constantly coming up with new ones. Yes, it is my job and my team's job to make lots and lots of magic cards. The enormity of this task just like intimidates me just talking about it. Just thinking about trying to do something new in a game where you've already done so much and come up with so many different little pieces of of the game, of gameplay. That's that's why I'm sort of, I don't know if you kind of hear just like the awe right now in my voice. But I, I want to go back to the beginning. Before we get into how you do your job now and, and what the day-to-day -day of it is, how did you get into game design? What, what was your road to magic? It was a very interesting road. I went to school and studied communications. I went to Boston University's College of Communications. I majored in broadcast and film. I went to Hollywood intent on writing for television. I had a little bit of success in Hollywood. I was on staff of Roseanne. And then uh, I started working part-time in a game store because I, I, writing is very solitary and I was just going a little stir crazy being at home. So I decided uh, I got a part-time job more so just to interact with people. And so I was working at a game store and people kept coming in asking about this new game that they'd heard. It's this game about magic and it has cards and we didn't have it, but they would describe it to me and it sounded fascinating. So I tracked it down and then I eventually convinced our store to carry it. And then I started playing the game and they eventually, uh, maybe six months later, put out a magazine about the game. It's called The Duelist. Uh, we don't publish it anymore, but we did way back in the day. And I read that magazine and I was fascinated. And so I ended up contacting, I came up with an idea for something that would go in the magazine, which was a puzzle column, kind of like a chess puzzle, except with magic, you know, a magic puzzle that was a, a game in progress and you had to solve the game. And I pitched the idea, they liked it. So uh, in issue one and a half, my puzzle started appearing. And then I started interacting with the editor and started pitching more articles. And so I started writing articles for the magazine and I became a freelance writer. But the company was young, I knew magic, I was able to write, I turned things in on time, so I started getting other assignments from other parts of the company. And at one point, I believe I was working with seven different parts of the company writing freelance material. Uh, and then uh, eventually, I, I would come up every once in a while to Seattle, which is where they're based, and I was at the offices one day, and I said, you know what, I'd be willing to move here. And the response was, when can you start? And that was back in 1995, and I've been working there ever since. So you didn't really have much of a background in actual game design. It wasn't like something you'd, you'd done before or, or had you? It was something I did as a hobby. Okay. So what I, I mean, I was not, that was not my career, but uh, my dad introduced me to games uh, when I was young. I played games all my youth, very much a game player. In college, I had a bunch of friends that, you know, most weekends we, we'd go to the local game store, buy a new game, go home and play it. So I was very much a gamer, but I was making games in my spare time for fun. And so I was a game designer, but only in, a, in an amateur sense. I had no training in it. Although back in the day, you know, in the 90s, you could not go to school and study game design. Now you can. That wasn't available back then. It wasn't a conceivable thing one would do, I guess, so that you couldn't go to school and study for it. You can major in game design now? 
you can major in game design. Yes, we have people who I work with who majored in game design. Huh. I, I want you to take me inside the Wizards of the Coast office. What, what does it look like in there? It's, it's cubicles. <laughs> it, it's a normal looking office. I mean, the one thing that's different about the section that we work in, we call the pit. Yeah. Um, we have a bunch of tables beyond just the cubicles. We have a whole bunch of tables because a lot of our job is literally sitting and playing magic. And yeah. so we have a lot of tables so we can play. But other than that, other than the tables, I mean, it, it looks like I think most work offices. Uh, you know, I have my little cubicle. And I mean, it's it, it's not really that different from, I think, most work environments. So you don't have like a, a statue of a goblin or an orc or something like hanging oh, we, over we your shoulder? Oh, we have those. We have okay. absolutely have those. Um, <laughs> Wizards of the Coast many years ago used to have uh, stores. We no longer have them. But when we had stores, we made a whole bunch of statues for the stores. And when they closed down, we brought them all to our, our home building. So, yes, you can find a statue of a goblin around the building. You can find a knight. You can find you know, various things that are more fantasy-based games, the various fantasy-based things that are from our game. So it doesn't look exactly like your, your typical like accountant's office. There's a, there's a little difference there, at least. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right nearby is what we call the creative team, which is another part of my larger group. And they're the ones that do all the creative work. Um, we have a stable of artists that are freelance how big is your team? How many people are you kind of working with? We refer to ourselves as sort of R&D, um, research and development, and there's different sections within our group. So we divide our design process into three parts, what yeah. we call vision design, set design, and play design. I'm in charge of vision design. Uh, so I will use a metaphor here to explain how, how we talk about this is, imagine you want to build a house. Yeah. Vision design is the architect. My job and the, team, the job of my team is we're going to map out what this house looks like. We're going to make blueprints so that we can hand this off to the team that's going to actually build the house. Okay. And set design, those are the people that are literally going to build the house. They're going to build the set. And then play design is kind of a cross between interior design and making sure the house is sturdy and won't fall over. So they're like the final stage that's making the house into a, a home, if you will. And so my part of the job is... I and my team, we have a blank piece of paper and we have to make something. And then we have to sort of, you know, make the, the architectural blueprints, if you will, of what is the set. Now, notice we put out um, three major sets a year. There's some other things we put out, but three major sets a year. And it's my responsibility uh, with me and my team to make sure that each one of those is defined. What is it? Where is it? What's going on? What's the major mechanical thing? What are the new mechanics? We keep putting out lots and lots of magic sets. Well, each one has to be different because why would I want this new set? What's it about? What's going on? And so we work very hard to make each new set something new and different. Mm -hmm. So um, some of the times we're going back to worlds we've been before, but a lot of the time we're going to a brand new world that we've never been to before. And so there's a whole team that has to design that world and like, what's this world about and what's it like? And I have to work closely with them so the mechanics of the, the set and the world come together and feel like one whole thing. That part of what we want is we want the gameplay itself to be one of the flavorful things that makes the world feel correct. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. 
So you said you have to come up with about three new sets a year, roughly. Yes. You're working on a cycle, essentially, right? Yeah, four months, four months, four months, four months, four months, four months, yeah. Every year, I, I have four months for each of three sets. Okay, so let, let's go to the beginning of, of this four-month cycle. You got the blank sheet of paper. What's what? What's step one? What are you guys doing? I have a blank piece of paper. What exploratory design is, is use my house metaphor. Let's say we're going to build a house. Well, before you can even start to do the blueprints, you need to go do research. You need to go figure out what, where could the house be or what kind of models of houses do you want? And so exploratory is us kind of experimenting with game design space and just figuring out, you know, we have a rough, rough idea of what we want. And then it's us sort of experimenting a little bit so we can learn and do the research. Okay. So when vision starts, vision is where we're starting to actually sort of make a file so that we, and the, once again, the, our file is like a proof of concept. So the people who are actually going to make the final file understand the, the essence of what we're trying to build. So we use, we sort of make a temporary file that is just proof of concept to show the kind of thing we want them to make. It sounds like when you're exploring, you're imagining what you might be able to imagine. Right. Like that sounds like sort of it's like pre-imaginated. Is that sort of the, the right way of thinking about it? Well, each set has a different jumping off point okay. and it depends what the set is about. So some of the sets are what we call top down design, which is we're going to make a set based on gothic horror, on Greek mythology, you know, on fairy tales. You know, we're going to take something that has some real world relevance and you're going to be inspired and make our own version of it, but make a world that has that inspiration. And that usually what we start with is what is the expectation? Yeah. Okay, we're going to do a world set on gothic horror. What would people expect? And we're like, oh, well, they'll expect vampires and werewolves and zombies. Okay, so part of top-down design is if we're being influenced by something, what are the cool things we'd want to put in the game and what do we think the audience would expect to be there? Okay. Other times we do what's called bottom-up design where it's very mechanical, that we start not from a flavor place but from a mechanical place. I oh, see. here's a new mechanic that we can do. And in a bottom-up design, it's all about figuring out sort of where the strength of the mechanic lies and then after that, figuring out the flavor. Which do you typically prefer? I like mixing it up. I like doing both. You like doing a little bit of both. Yes. I mean, the reason I've done this job for as long as I have is I, it, it does not bore me. Uh, every time we start a design, it's like I'm designing a brand new game. Yes, I'm using the mechanics of magic. I'm, you know, I, I'm using, there's a rule system and stuff in place. But every time I sit down with a brand new set, I have a goal to make something I've never, ever made before. And that was, that's what makes it very exciting is that no two sets are the same. Let's start by talking about a top-down design. What's a set of cards that you built that way that you particularly love or proud of or like that you think is a good example of that process? I'll give you a couple of choices. You pick the one that you think is most interesting to you. Okay. We have a world called Innistrad that's based on Gothic horror. Okay. We have a world called Theros, which is based on Greek mythology. Okay. Uh, we have a world called Amenket that was based on uh, Egyptian mythology. The one coming out this fall is based on fairy tales, but I, I can't talk too much about it because it's not out yet. Let's go with Gothic horror. Okay. Let's, okay. It's Gothic horror for 500. <laughs> so how do you... So you? I guess, did you get basically the... Were, were you given the kind of story outline or the world building outline and told, okay, let's do Gothic horror? Or how did that, how did that start? So the way it worked, I actually was the impetus for the gothic horror world. We had made a completely different world and we had made some choices and it dawned on me and our creative director that we could have gone a certain direction that we didn't. And we both realized it was a neat idea. 
So I actually pitched to the higher ups here. I said, I think the horror genre would be a really neat thing for us to build around because it's, you know, it's adjacent to fantasy. And I just think there's a lot of things that we naturally do in the game. You know, the game had vampires, it had zombies. There's a lot of things that were naturally part of magic that we could lean into. So we started with me suggesting, hey, I think it'd be cool to do a gothic horror world. Now, I was working in tandem with our creative director at the time, who was the person in charge of our creative team. So essentially, the person in charge of the creative and the person in charge of design got together and said, hey, the two of us really think this is a neat idea. We pitched it. We, um, it took a while, but we finally got to go ahead. Uh, and then what I did the very first day with my team is I said, okay, we're making a, a set based on the genre of horror. You know, think movies, think TV, think books. What, what would the audience expect to see? If we tell our audience, this is a set based on the horror genre, what would you expect to see? And so we wrote, we made a giant list. We have, we have you know, big whiteboards. We made a giant list. And one of the things we wrote down very early was monsters. You expect to see monsters. And we're like, okay, well, what kind of monsters we expect to see? And they're like, we well, got to have vampires and you got to have zombies. You got to have werewolves and probably ghosts. And we made a list of all the stuff we wanted to see. And... We did that with everything we could think of. You know, what, what kind of uh, environment do you expect to see? What kind of, what are all the things that, hey, a card that would have this on it would be really cool. And we made a giant list. Okay. How long are we talking here? Like, like five? Uh, we filled a very, very big whiteboard probably three times up. Okay. You had a lot of different monsters and powers. I mean, not just, I mean, yeah, monsters. I mean, one of the things we like to do is we'll like go to TV tropes, you know, and say, okay, what, what are all the tropes built around monster movies? You know, what are, and one of the things we'll do is say, okay, name every horror movie you can think of. Name every TV show you can think of. Name every book you can think of. And just start mapping them all down and, and then use that to go, okay, okay, let's talk about The Walking Dead. Um, what kind of things, do, you know, if you're, if you're used to seeing that, what are all the tropes of that? What's, we're talking zombie apocalypse now. What are the zombie tropes? How do zombies work? What are what are the kind of weapons the humans would use to fight the zombies? And we we did all this work to map out a giant space of what are all the different things that we think represent this. Yeah. Then what we had to do is say, okay, of the things we've written down, what are things that the game can capture in a, in a clean, good way? For starters, magic has a lot of creatures. Creatures are a huge part of magic. Yeah. So we said, okay, we want to do monsters. What monsters do we want to do? And we very quickly realized that we wanted to do vampires, werewolves, and zombies. Uh, and we later added in ghosts. I joke that it was the breakfast cereal. Like, what kind of breakfast cereal have you made monsters out of? And turns out they made four, and those were the four. I'm like, okay, those must be the major monsters. They made breakfast cereals out of them. Wait, we're, so the, were the vampires, zombies, and werewolves, like, fighting with each other? Was that the idea of the set? Like, Team Teen Wolf, Team, like, Nosferatu, or was no, it... No, the way we worked it was that there were humans in this world, because you couldn't do a horror movie without humans. Okay. And every monster was attacking the humans. So the story was about the humans in peril, because on all sides they're being attacked by monsters. So okay. it's not that the monsters were fighting themselves, as much as the monsters were attacking the humans. Okay. Also, if you'll notice, all four of the monsters come from humans. Yeah. Vampires were once human. Werewolves were once human. And sometimes, you know, occasionally aren't still human. Zombies were once human. Ghosts were once human. One of the cool things about monsters is humans turn into the monsters. Ah. And so we thought they were was a very good theme that sort of played into it. So our story was the humans versus the monsters. That was our concept. Okay. And so at that point, you have the kinds of monsters you want in the set. How does that then translate into you creating cards that somebody can play with? 
I mean, we had the monsters. We also figured out the kind of the tone, the emotion. One of the things that's really important when we're building a set is what do we try to evoke out of our players? Like each set, we want to, we want the players to feel differently when they play because we want to evoke a different kind of world. I see. So what would you expect from a gothic horror world? Well, you would expect to be afraid. You would expect fear. You know what I'm saying? Like when you watch a horror movie, what emotion is running through you? You are afraid. What are they trying to do in a horror movie? They're trying to scare you. So yep. one of the things that we wanted to make sure we worked in as we started making our set is, okay, I want to make tense moments. I want there to be things where you, the player, are worried about something because something bad could happen. And I, I really wanted this set to sort of evoke that. And so when we were making mechanics and making our monsters, you know, it was really about what can we do to invoke that sense of fear in the player. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, werewolves. So yeah. magic had done a lot with vampires and a lot with zombies, but we really hadn't done a lot with werewolves. I think there were three werewolf cards in all the history of magic at the time we were making the set. So one of the things I said to my team is, I felt like werewolf was where we were gonna make our mark. You know, magic has done vampires and zombies. Yeah, we'll do we'll do more vampires and zombies, but werewolves are something that, this is gonna be the werewolf set. Yeah. So what I said to my team is, okay, let's make the most awesome werewolves we can. What do we need to do? And okay. I got a whole bunch of recommendations. One of the craziest recommendations was, now normally on a magic card, there's the front of the magic card and there's the back of the magic card. And on the back of the magic card is the back of the magic card. And all magic cards have the same back. Yeah. So one of the ideas that got pitched to me was, imagine if the front of the card was a human and the back of a card was a werewolf and the card literally had two sides. We had never done that. That was not something magic had ever done. Magic had always had a back. That seems like a thing that would mess with gameplay. Well, one of the things is a lot of people when they play, play in opaque sleeves. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it turns out that we did some research. Uh, there is a way to, we, we did make a game piece that allows you a checklist card that you can play as the one-sided card. And when you play, you, you get out the double-sided card from, from wherever you, you have it on the, on the side. But the interesting thing about this was we were trying to capture something. We were trying to capture a sense of, of werewolves. And we came up with a mechanic that at first seemed crazy. But we played it because part of my job is don't assume anything's crazy. Maybe, you know, sometimes crazy things turn into awesome stuff. So we played it. It was really fun. It was, and one of the things I wanted to do was I wanted to create a sense of fear. Well, what happened was when you played the human, the human wasn't particularly that scary. It wasn't that strong. It wasn't that dangerous. But at some point, it was going to turn into a werewolf, and that werewolf was going to kick your butt. That werewolf was a really powerful, dangerous creature. So when you saw the, the human, you got afraid because you knew that human was going to turn into a werewolf and you did not want that to happen. And it did a great job of both bringing the werewolf to life and bringing the sense of wanting to create some sense of fear in the game, in, in this environment. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Once you've gotten to this point where it sounds like you've got the theme, the kind of emotional tenor, the you want to get the horror factor in, when do you guys actually start coming up with the mechanics? So what happens is very early on, we start to map out what we're trying to do. Yeah. Like I said, each set is different. I'm, I'm walking through the Gothic Horror set, but each yeah. set is different. We come up with mechanics very early on. So one of the things we do is we always will think back and look at what we've done before. So 10 years earlier, I made a mechanic called flashback. So flashback are normally in magic, you cast spells and the, what we call sorceries or instants, and they, you cast them and they go right away to the discard pile. Other times you'll cast creatures and things that stick around. So I made a mechanic called flashback. So in magic, when you cast a spell, you get to cast it once. And then some spells just go away right away. They go to the discard pile, what we call the graveyard for flavor. And we had made a mechanic called flashback that let you cast spells that were in the graveyard, meaning normally they're gone. You can't use them anymore. But these spells you get to use twice. You get to use them normally and then once out of the graveyard. Well, in a set all about you know, death and all about horror, oh, casting things out of the graveyard was very flavorful. Yeah. So very early on, we said, oh, well, let's bring back this mechanic. It's a mechanic we already had, but we think it fits here very well. And this brings me back to kind of where we started in the conversation, which is you have this vast library of cards that exist. I mean, how do you go back researching what's there if you don't kind of know it all off the top of your head? And also, you know, how do you make sure that what you're doing is fresh, that you're not going to get some super fan who's like, oh, he did that back in like, you know, X classic era in like 97, <laughs> you know? Well, one of the things, having been here for so long, um, well, I might not know every card off the top of my head. I know what we've done. I know all the mechanics we've done. I know what all the sets we've done. If we've done something, I might not remember exactly sometimes, but it might be, oh, oh, yeah, we did something like this and we can go look it up in the database. So... I mean, I'm very, very well versed on magic and magic mechanics because that is my job. So I, yeah. I do know what we have and have not done. You've got this database. Like, what do you do when you go in and search that? Is it like, is that like a, you know, in-house thing only or is it like the same thing you can get in public of a, of a magic database? We both have some internal stuff and there's some external tools we can use. Uh, both exist. One of the things about magic is we have a very fanatical fan base, very technical minded. They make a lot of really fun tools for themselves that sometimes we will also use. So... Oh, yeah. So it's like the fan wiki actually comes in handy. Yeah. For example, uh, there is a, uh, a fan that really loves the lore of the game, loves the story and stuff. And there's a uh, fan made wiki about all the different story points. And if we ever want to look something up, they've made this giant wiki that lists everything and we can look it up. Stuff like that. So you have a rough idea of what's happened before. And the thing that's keeping it fresh is the broad concept, the flavor, as, as you guys put it. I mean, there's a new flavor, and we've also crafted mechanics around that flavor. So, yeah. like, it's gothic horror, but, oh, now we have, for the first time ever, we have double-faced cards that we never had before, where there's the card, instead of having the normal magic back, doesn't. It has a second face. We've yeah. never done that before, so that's new and exciting. How do you make sure all the cards actually then work well together once you've started coming up with ideas? How do you figure out if they interact? And Because, I mean, that's the, that is the game, is it's building decks. How do you start making sure you're actually creating a set that can be built into something. The main part of design is what we call the iterative process, which is you make cards, you play test the cards, you get feedback on those cards, you make changes, and then you can, you do the next loop of play testing. And we okay. do a lot of play testing. 
one of the things I like to say is we play a lot of very unfun games of magic, so our audience can play lots of fun games. What is an unfun game of magic? Oh, yeah, uh, something where things are unbalanced or where something, you know, a card is too powerful or nothing happens for too long. You know, there's a lot of games in which we don't quite have it right, so it's not working as well as it's supposed to be, and then it gets unfun because it's not, you know, when, when the game actually comes out, when the audience gets to play the game, we want it to be dynamic and every mechanic is, you know, well-tested and the cards combine together and, like, everything about what makes magic magic is there. But to get there, we have to play a lot of games where it's not quite right and we have to adjust it or change it or remove things or add things. We will make, for example, for an average magic set has 249 cards in it, we will probably design, uh, for every card that makes it in the set, there are probably anywhere from 80 to 100 cards that don't. Really? We make tons and tons and tons. I mean, we are constantly chewing through things and making new versions. Now, some of them are just variants of what we made before. Sometimes we make a card and then we tweak it and 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 tweak it. And tweak it. Other times we make a card, kill it, make a new card, kill it, make a new card, kill it. So there's different versions of things. But we make what we make as far as what, like, for example, I turn in a file to set design from Vision Design. It's a full card file. It represents what the set could be. Of what I turn in to what gets printed, very few cards from what I turn in are actually printed. A few can be. It depends on the set. But most of the time, they take the essence of what I'm doing and they redesign most of the things to fit together and, and do what they need to do to make it play the best they can. So there's a lot of trying things and iterating. That That's a big part of what we do. That's, in the end, what you guys are angling towards is this big file, all the possible things that could go into this set. Well, I mean, when the dust settles, we are going to make an actual list of cards that come out. We're going yeah. to print some cards. But along the way, we're trying to maximize every card we can. And here's the other tricky thing about Magic. Magic is really not one game. It really is a whole number of games that are played with a shared rule system and, and cards. Yeah. And, for example, you know, there's ways to play what we call limited, where I'm just literally opening up booster packs and playing with the cards I open. Yeah. Uh, constructed means ahead of time I choose the cards and I want to play. And there's lots of different formats to play. Do you want to play just for the last two years of cards? Do you want to play for the last ten years of cards? Do you want to play every you know, with every card possible that Magic ever made? There's different formats that you can play. And so when we put out a Magic set, we're not just putting out a Magic set for one group. We're putting out a Magic set for all groups. Yeah. And so the challenge is we have to make a very diverse group of cards that makes every single Magic player happy, knowing that not every card makes everybody happy, but some card makes everybody happy. So how much of your time is is actually just spent playing over and over again to see how the, the cards uh, function in, in, in an actual game? Uh, it depends. Uh, a decent amount is spent. I mean, the way it works is the later you go into the design of a product, the more often you're playtesting it. Okay. Because early on, you're doing... A, wide sweeping changes to figure things out. And later on, you're doing small incremental changes. Well, the small incremental changes can happen much faster. So early on, we're playtesting every three to four weeks. And by the time it's about to go up, they're playing every week. They're playing constantly. How many games of Magic would you say you typically play in a week at the office? Uh, it depends what stage I'm at. I play less probably than most people, just the, the nature of my job. But I play... Eight to ten games a week on average, probably. I play on the low end. Like, uh, people in R&D, I'm on, I'm on the way, way low end because I'm doing a lot of the, the big picture stuff. What about the high end, like the people who are doing the... Oh, there's people who are playtesters who that's all they do, and they probably play hundreds of games a week. Wow, that's, that's a lot. Yeah, but that's their job. They are the playtesters. That's their job. Their job is just to playtest, 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 playtest. So is that person's job basically, like, just playtest... Take notes on what worked and what didn't, then give that to the rest of the team? 
Yeah, so play design is the people that play test the most. What they're trying to do is they're field testing it, right? When, when, when it gets to the, the end part, these are cards we think are real cards. These are cards we think we're going to put out. And then they're going to actually play with them and go, oh, this needs to cost one more. Oh, this card and this card interact in a weird way. We might want to tweak something. You know, they're taking actual notes. Like in video games, they do people that play test and write down the bugs and stuff. This is kind of the you know, real version of that with live cards. I used to play Magic when I was younger. And one way some of the guys who were really competitive used to put it was that it was sort of like poker with spells. That might partly be because a lot of them were also pro poker players on the side. But the, the idea was that there was a lot of math. There were odds. There was a sort of technical aspect to the game underneath all the fantasy trappings. And I, I'm, I'm wondering how much of that comes into the actual design. How much of the math and probability do you guys factor in? Or is it more kind of from the gut when you're doing all of this? It, it is funny. Uh, many, many years ago when I was in high school or something, I remember getting frustrated in math class because I said... Why am I taking so much math? When am I going to... I thought I was going to be a writer, right? I was going to write in Hollywood. I'm like, I'm not going to use this much math. I'm going to have page numbers. I'm going to count my salary. That's it. It's all the math I need. And it turns out that I work on a game designed by a math PhD. And it turns out game design has an insane amount of math. There's a lot of math. And that part of what we have to do is we have to figure a lot of things out. For example, we're a trading card game. We don't know for sure what any one person is going to open. It's random. But we have different rarities and things. And so there's a lot of trying to figure out, like, there's a lot of math that goes into this. And on my end, uh, from the early part of it, I'm trying to figure out how to make themes work and how, how many cards have to exist so the theme gets seen. And on the back end, like the play design, it's sort of like they're figuring out raw numbers and the combinatorics and how things work. And, oh, this has to cost two, not three. And so there's a giant amount of math that goes into this from, from the very, very beginning to the very, very end of the process. So can you give me an example of where math ruins your week? <laughs> or I mean, I'm kidding, but like, sure. yeah, okay. like where I'll, it comes I'll get into, into play. The technical like, part of my job for you guys. Yeah. So there's a thing uh, we term it was called AvsFan, which is short for AvsFan. Okay. So if I open up a booster pack, booster packs have 15 cards in it. I want to figure out how often you're going to see something. So I, I have to figure out. Here's the theme in my set. I want this theme to show up. Okay. So what I have to do is in a theme pack. Uh, Ten of the cards are going to be common, three are uncommon, one of them's going to be a land, and the last lot is seven out of eight times a rare and one out of eight times a mythic rare. Now, for each one of those rarities, there's a certain number of cards we're going to print. Now, I have to figure out, based on the math of how often things show up in booster packs and how many cards there are per rarity, how many things I have to do something so that I get the right as fan. I see. So let's say, for example, I'm, we're talking gothic horror. Let's say I want vampires to show up at a, at a certain rate. I have to start figuring out, okay, well, how many vampires are there? How many of each rarity? Then magic has five colors and not everything shows up in every color. And the colors show up roughly at equal rarity, uh, roughly at equal amount, meaning there's as many black cards as white cards, as green cards, as red cards, as blue cards. Um, and so part of, there's just a huge amount of math to go. I want vampires to show up at such a rate that when people play it, that they're seeing the vampires like in order for my mechanic to work, I have to know how many vampires there are. And so that requires a lot of math to go, okay, how many vampires should there be? Yeah. Oh, I see. There needs to be seven common red vampires, six common black vampires, 
Uh, four uncommon red, four uncommon black. Like, I have to map it all out to understand, okay, if we have this right number, that's the right percentage that when we play, it'll show up at a rate where you'll be able to interact with it in the way we want you to interact with it. Do you have sort of math jocks on your team who are responsible for that? Or is that something everyone is just sort of expected to be able to think about and do? That is considered low-level math for my job. So I'm supposed to do that. (laughs) Okay. Um, There's much more complicated higher math. In fact, we have an economist on staff that's whole job is to do mathematical models to figure out stuff that we human brains don't have a chance of doing and we need computers to help us with. When it comes to actually designing mechanics, how does the math affect things? Well, the math in the mechanics is more about... The biggest part for me, my part of the job, is I have to understand how much of something we have to have. So one of the ways to play magic is called a draft. The way a draft works is you get three booster packs, and then you take turns opening them up. And usually we do what's called booster draft, where you take one and pass the pack, and the next person takes one. But you're you're drafting the cards, and then you're going to play with the cards you draft. Yep. Drafting is a very, very popular way to play Magic. Oh, yeah, I used to love it. We need to do the math to make sure that the sets we build work well in draft. So you don't just have to have the sense of how powerful a card is or, you know, what whether or not a, a card would be cool or interesting, you also have to know the frequency with which it's going to show up in a popular format because and people can't necessarily build it in advance. It's not just about how that one card shows up. It's how different cards show up together or how different themes show up together. So I let's see. say, for example, I make what we call an A-B mechanic, meaning a card from section A, there's a subset of things that are A, and then you have a subset of th- things that are B. And you need, in order for this to work, you need one card from A and one card from B. Now, some of those cards exist at different rarities. It's a trading card game. Like, we have to figure out, well, how much does A have to exist, and how much does B have to exist, and how much do they have to exist with each other? Now, on top of that, we have what we call collation, which is cards aren't truly random. We make sheets because we have to print it. Yeah. And the way we print magic is normally the sheets are like 121, so it's 11 by 11 on the sheet. And there's different rarities, and different rarities have different sheets. And then each rarity has multiple sheets. So there's a very complex set of math to make sure that when people open up the booster packs, A, they feel random, and B, they're making sure that we weight the, the packs so they're equally balanced so that one, one pack isn't super, super powerful, another super, super weak. But anyway, uh, a big part of my job, I mean, I need the math to understand how much I have to do with something to make sure that it plays correctly. But another big part of my job beyond the math is the synergy, is making sure that I'm picking things, you know, I and my team are crafting something in which not only do individual cards work well in a vacuum, ah, but if card A is played with card B, it's greater than the sum of its parts. And so a lot of the fun of Magic is you get to pick and choose what you're playing with. So we want to make cards that have synergy together so that you can learn and discover the synergies and go, ha-ha, if I play this card with that card, look what happens. And so we have to build a lot of open-ended synergies in because one of the things that's tricky is, you know, R&D is, is 50 to 100 people. The world, you know, Magic has millions and millions and millions of players. So whatever we do, they're going to duplicate in the first three minutes of playing. So we have to make things that are not solved because if we could solve them, the audience would solve them immediately. We need to make things that are open-ended enough that there's enough open-ended synergies that the audience will discover things that we never particularly discovered but put there as a means to come together so that people can discover it. 
How do you do that? How do you kind of leave something open-ended like that? That's why I get paid the big bucks. Uh, is, uh, I mean, that's that's a lot of my job is how do you get themes and make them so they're synergistic so yeah. that, like, the real challenge of being a game designer is yeah. the end result is did they have fun? Was it fun? Did they enjoy themselves? And so a lot of my job is to understand the psychology of, okay, well, what do people want? what makes the game fun, and then weaving that in so that all the different things that people want are woven into what the cards are. What is a really painful creative decision you have to make regularly? Probably the biggest pain decision is I've made something, it's awesome, but it's not, as a whole, it's not helping the set. Meaning it's a, in a vacuum, it's a great, wonderful thing, mm-hmm. but it is not promoting the set as a whole as well as it could be. And I have to take out something that I truly love, that the audience would love, that truly is an amazing thing, but it is not the right thing for the set I'm doing. Is that because the card will be like too powerful or too... No, no, no. Just it's not advancing. Like if you want to think of games as a whole system, I'm trying to make something that as a, a whole entity is, is something. I see. My background is in writing. So when I went to film school, one of the things they teach you is, let's say you write the best scene you've ever written. It's the most amazing scene. It's heartbreaking. It's funny. It's just an amazing scene. And then your teacher will go, does it advance your plot? And you go, no. And he goes, out. Can't stay. You know, and that part of art is, you know, just because you make something endearing to yourself that's an amazing thing in a vacuum, if it's not helping the larger purpose, it's not serving what you're doing. Yeah. And magic is a hungry monster. We make, you know, many, many sets. Anything I make that's awesome, I so I will find another place for it. It's not like magic is not constantly looking for things. I will find another home for it. And one of the things I do is I will take a mechanic and I will put it aside and maybe next year, maybe in five years, maybe in 10 years. One time it took 15 years. But I eventually will find a home for it. And it's the hard part about designing something is saying I have to do what's good for the set even though the thing I'm taking out is something I truly love. How big is your filing cabinet full of those right now? Uh, it's kind of my head, but big. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time to come and chat with me. Oh, you're welcome. That is it for this week's episode of Working. I hope you enjoyed the show. We may do more Magic the Gathering next week. We might go on to something else kind of whimsical and fun. Who knows? We'll see. Anyway, <laughs> if you have... Thoughts, complaints, things you want to say to me, email me at working at slate.com. Again, it's working at slate.com. Or, you know, if you love the show, if we're making all of your just fanboy dreams come true with these last couple episodes, leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. As always, working is produced by Justin and Molly. A special thank you to Justin D. Wright for the ad music. I'm Jordan Weissman. Catch us next week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 